Here is the latest Higher Summits forecast brought to you by our friends at the Mount Washington Observatory. Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this elevation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603 356 2137. And here's your forecast for Friday, August 25th and Saturday, August 27th. So this weekend we see another round of widespread rain um, throughout the uh, forecast period of Friday through Saturday that we're covering here. So uh, be on the lookout for uh, some thunderstorms as well as periods of rain apparently saturday will be a little little better than friday friday's gonna be a, a washout um so let's see what we have here oh yeah cooler temps as well so check this out so friday in the clouds with rain showers and a slight chance of thunderstorms with a high in the upper 40s southwest winds shifting west at 50 to 65 miles per hour with gusts up to 85 miles per hour then decreasing to 30 to 45 miles per hour friday night in the clouds with a chance of rain showers and a slight chance of thunderstorms early with a low in the upper 40s with winds shifting northwest at 25 to 40 miles an hour and then saturday in the clouds with rain likely and a chance of thunderstorms High in the lower 50s, falling to the upper 40s, with winds northwest at 25 to 40 miles per hour. And that is your forecast, your Higher Summits forecast for the weekend. Is there any, anything significant about that number? Not that uh, comes to mind. I don't know. 119. It's a single 19. Only comes yes. once. 
Yeah, well, there's nothing interesting. So um, I was on a road trip this weekend stopping. I feel like last time, I don't know if the listeners will remember, but like there was a whole big embarrassing thing where my family gave me a hard time because I got lost in New York again. I took... I, that was going home. I was supposed to take the Mario Cuomo, like, Tappan Zee Bridge, but I took the Verrazano Bridge. I, was, I just got them confused because one Italian name, <laughs> I guess the Tappan Zee Bridge and the Verrazano, I don't know why I associate them. But, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm not going to get lost this time. That'll never happen again. Sure enough, we end up in Manhattan again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Oh, jeez. Oh, so embarrassing. It's like uh, so Escape from New York in there now, from what I hear. Like, the crime's out of control. I just can't get through Manhattan without getting lost. And my wife is just like, I mean, she's mad, but she's also in her glory because she's just like, I can't believe this happened again. And you, this is all your fault. And she's like on the phone with her father talking about how we got lost again. And her father-in-law's like, you got to do the paper map. And like, it's a whole thing. So, so wait a minute. So did just, your GPS drop the ball? No, no, no. I dropped the ball. So it was like this weird intersection on the highway on 95 where I was supposed to stay to the right to get over the George Washington Bridge, but I stayed to the left yeah. and ended up in some other bridge. And then I was like, all right, well, I'll just turn around. And then it rerouted me um, like multiple times. And not, not only did I get totally lost, but I ended up like even taking a wrong turn when I got into Manhattan and ended up in the driveway of the cruise ship terminal. <laughs> so it was a whole, yeah, it was bad. And then I ended up going under the, whatever the main tunnel is, the Washington, I don't know what the yeah, tunnel is, Washington. but it's like the main tunnel to get out. Yeah, it's of. not so easy it's, getting it's out of the, uh, the ports. That's a, those are dead no. ends. Yeah, so I hate New York. Oh, boy. Sorry to my New York listeners. So <laughs> I like the Adirondacks and, and the Catskills. I don't like the city. Um, so, Stump, I just wanted to sh- give a shout-out to our friend Alvaro. So, Alvaro and Susie were on um, one of our earlier episodes. I'll have to look back and see what number it was. Um, but Alvaro has become an official U.S. citizen as of, uh, I think, a week or two ago. Wow. Had no idea. That's great. Congrats, Alvaro. Yes. So we'll have to send him a, a congratulations. Maybe you can put like a, um, a patriotic voice or like a sound drop over this discussion, this part. <laughs> Fife and drum. Fife and drum. little background. Yes. Yeah. No, it's great that people yeah. are still pursuing that. I mean, it's love for country is so critical. Yeah, it certainly is, and we got to get uh, we got to get Susie and Alvaro. We got to get them out. They've been working out. They're in great shape. Yes. They're ready to go. So. They certainly are. Uh, yep. And then stop before we do the intro. You had a note on here, something about a cool peek into the slasher Instagram community. I'm not really that involved in the Instagram. I'm, I'm, I'm I don't know what this. Sure, is. people tag us week to week for those notable hikes. I clicked on it the other day and I was blown away because there are literally hundreds of pictures of just people hiking and laughing and having a great time. And it's all the tags that people have uh, sent our way. So next time you're on our um, page, check out the, the tag section and check it out, man. It's such a great growing community of listeners and people out there just killing it. So it's really nice. It was a nice surprise. Look at you, Mr. Social Media, building a community. (laughs) Yes, it takes a community. (laughs) We will build it. 
meanwhile, I'm on like the sad little Facebook page. <laughs> like it's just, you know, I got to get motivated to put some more stuff up. So uh, sorry, Facebook fans. Yeah, check out the tags and keep on tagging us. Yes. So what is the tag? Is it like, sla- is it, is it? It's our handle, like our slasher podcast. Slasher podcast. Yeah. So if you click on one of your pictures and then type our name in, it'll pop up. You could tag us and boom, it'll show up on our end and we can give you a plug and you'll end up in our little community tag group. Yeah. And I, and I do look, I mean, I, I, yeah. I get the notifications on my phone uh, and I do look sometimes, but I'm just not, not as on top of it as you are. So thank yeah. you, Stomp, it's all for good. all the work that you do. All right. So uh, welcome to episode 119 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast. Uh, this week, we are wrapping up the summer with some recommended hikes that we have not covered on the show before, or if we have covered them, it's been a while. Plus, we've got fun events in New Hampshire coming up in late summer and early fall. Um, we got an update on the K2 fatality that we talked about last week. And uh, when mountain goats attack, we've got a story about mountain goats attacking. Uh, We're going to talk about water levels and uh, how to pay attention to those when you're planning your hikes. We've got a history segment about the Pine Revolution. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about Governor John Wentworth, who's an interesting character. And then um, we've got a little bit about visiting Asheville, North Carolina and the Smoky Mountains. And it was a busy weekend for search and rescue in New Hampshire. So Mm. and a couple of dicey rescues. So I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Excellent. Excellent. So um, stuff to do, Stomp. So the end of the summer's coming. Yep. From a housekeeping perspective, I think we're skipping next week. We're taking we're taking a week off, is that right? Yes. Yep. Right. Labor Day week. Labor Day week, um, we're taking that off. So you guys are on your own for uh, for content. So this will drop. Um, the week before on August 25th and then the following week we'll have no show and then we'll be back. Yeah, unless you want me to put like a five hour DJ mix up. (laughs) I don't know. I think we need, well, we need coffee donations for the the, the megabytes. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. Um, all right, Stomp. So you pulled some stuff and I pulled some stuff. We wanted to just give the listeners, it's been so crappy weather-wise. Uh, and all these events are outdoor events because like, what's the point of not getting outdoors? So we're, we're going to keep our fingers crossed that the weather's going to turn. Obviously, we want you out there hiking, but in between hikes, we wanted to just share a couple of things that are fun to do. And I think we've talked about sure. some of these before, but maybe not all of them. So mm-hmm. I'll go down the list, Stomp, and then you can sort of give me your, your feedback or experience on these and then I'll add what up my thoughts. So yep. um, coming up on, I'll do these in order of date here. So there's a UFO festival in Exeter, um, New Hampshire, which is in the seacoast region close to me. Interesting. So the Exeter area, Kiwanis, are pleased to announce that the uh, the Exeter UFO Festival is going to take place September 2nd and 3rd. So it's a celebration of all things UFO related. There's going to be speakers, panels, uh, a bunch of shops and restaurants will be participating. And uh, it will be pretty cool. There was an 18-year-old kid who reported that uh, he had seen a sighting of an unidentified flying object in Kensington. So uh, they're going to talk all about that situation and uh, anything to do with UFO stuff. So if you're into that, it's happening in Exeter. Are they doing uh, UFO flyovers? (laughs) I'm not sure if they're doing flyovers. I mean, this, this... 
this is Stomp. I had to interrupt this edit because I asked Mike if they were going to be doing UFO flyovers. <laughs> and he, he wasn't quite sure. <laughs> Are they doing uh, UFO flyovers? I'm not sure if they're doing flyovers. I mean, this this story here sounds interesting. So this happened in 1965. Uh, a guy's name is Norman Muscarello, and mm-hmm. he reported this sighting in uh, Kensington, which is the town next to where I live. Okay. So they're going to be, um, I guess they based this, this festival on that incident. So uh, you can hear all about that, and then huh. you can also hear a bunch of different other speakers. Sounds like a interesting time yeah i'd never heard of it before i don't think maybe maybe we covered it before but i I wasn't aware of it yeah i don't think so all right and then uh the following weekend uh there are two events to check out there is the we'll stick down by the seaport sea seacoast region hampton beach seafood festival which is september 8th to the 10th um they basically close the main drag on hampton beach and there's a bunch of vendors so uh fried clams clam chowder lobster rolls fish and chips um, you know, they've got a bunch of sweets there. There's some fried dough yeah. um, vendors and all kinds of all kinds of beer and, and things to drink and eat there. So I don't know. Have you ever gone to the stomp? I've not. It sounds like a really nice time. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. It's a little bit like it's one of these weird things where you can, I think I've gone one year where it was like freezing cold and raining. And then I've gone one year where it was like a hundred degrees. So yeah. you never know what you're going to get weather wise, but it's a bit of a pain in the neck to park. Uh, I recommend that you come in up 286 and come in from the south and just park at the the Hampton reservation and then take the shuttle over or walk over. Um, that's, that's tends to be the easiest way to get around over there, but it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Super crowded though. It, it does get crowded, but it's, yeah, I mean, pack your patience for sure. Yeah. Um, and then next up in that same weekend between September 8th and September 10th, the annual Mud Bowl in North Conway Village is happening. So this is right off of Route 16 uh, down the hill. Uh, it's an annual event that's been going on, I think, since the early 70s. And it's basically At football least. games in mud. <clears throat> and uh, it's a fun, fun party down there. Yeah, it looks great. I've never gone, but I've seen the advertising for decades yeah yeah it's um it's interesting this year there was a post that went viral on craigslist where one team was advertising to see if they could um, get a little person to join their team and the idea and maybe we covered this i'm not sure but the idea was is that they could get a little person on their team they could throw the little person up in the air um to block field goal attempts (laughs) is that the the current terminology for a little person? Are you talking I'm about? I'm pretty sure, Stomp. Are you not going to playing it safe? And I'm not going to get canceled, so I'm going to call it a little person. I don't. I don't even remember what they used to call them. And I think Peter Dinklage has been pretty clear that you don't. I mean, matter of fact, Peter Dinklage, like they don't even. They canceled the dwarfs from the new little uh, the they new sure Snow did. White and the Seven Dwarfs. So right. I don't even know if I'm supposed to say that. Thank you, Peter. Yes, thank Jeez. you for. Uh, thanks for eliminating jobs for your your little people friends. So, oh man, nice work. Um, and then next up is back down to the seacoast region here. This is actually, I don't know if I would recommend going to this. So the air show at Pease Air Force Base, September 9th and the 10th. Um, this stuff doesn't appeal to me like, 
Well, I don't know. I've never gone. Have you gone? Oh, yeah. Plenty. Plenty of air shows. Oh, really? That's a great time. What's so appealing about it? Well, you get to uh, see some of the historic planes from, say, World War II and whatnot. You get to tour the planes internally. And then, obviously, they do flyovers um, that are pretty low and dramatic because those planes are just loud as hell and incredibly impressive. Yeah, it's a good time. Yeah, all right. Well, you know, the air show at Pease is September 9th and 10th. I actually, though, what I tell people is... Um, I haven't gone to the shows, but I typically will time it where I'm coming home from Maine. I'll go, you know, Route 16 to 95. And nine times out of 10, if you time it between like two o'clock and like four o'clock on Sunday, yeah, you'll end up sort of seeing the, the flyovers and, and some of the cool stuff. Yeah, makes sense. I remember when we used to live in North Andover, they had the uh, the airport, the Lawrence Airport. Mm-hmm. And they every single year, they would have a B-18 come in and give flights, but you could also just walk around it and go inside and check it out. And they would do several runs around the area. And uh, boy, it was impressive. Yeah, yeah, those are big, big planes. So, yeah, not personally my cup of tea, but it's it's definitely worth checking out. And then last but not least is the Freiburg Fair is coming from October 1st through the 8th. So mm-hmm. this is in Freiburg, Maine, very close to North Conway off of 302. Great time. They've got some good entertainment. They've got, um, you know, all of the uh, the livestock competitions. They've got a lot of good vendors. They've got plenty of food. They've got all of those um, carnival rides that, you know, they literally look like they're going to fall apart and kill you to ride on, but that's what makes them fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. So, and then the entertainment, just to give you a heads up, you got the Marshall Tucker band. Oh, and they're playing on Tuesday night. And then every other band I am not familiar with, they've got 12 OC. Mm-hmm. They've got Nico Moon. No clue. The Great Escape, Emily Ann Roberts, and then Bad Habit. No clue. No clue. We are out of touch. We are out of touch. They should do, you know, they should have the stomp machine play an an EDM night. Oh, boy. Anytime. Okay. I'll but do it. So that's a, that's a lot of things to do. So put those on your calendar. So again, just to run it down, you got the UFO Fest on the Seacoast, UFO Festival, Hampton Beach Seafood Festival, and then the Air Show on Peas, and then up north you've got the uh, the Mud Bowl, the Freiburg Fair, and then last but not least is the 47th annual Highland Games Festival, which we've talked about before. That's coming to Loon on September 15th through the 17th. Correct, and that is yes. a monstrous time. I've not personally gone, but I've seen the the band roster and the food and the competitions it's amazing and i've seen some really awkward looking people with kilts on that break their kilt out one time a year so it's a good time even if you're on main street lincoln you'll have a good laugh (laughs) yeah when i went to that nostalgia night at um storyland there was a bunch of bunch of guys in kilts i bet you they um they go into this highland games thing huh pre-gaming pre-kilting yeah, I don't know what they would like. I don't know what their vibe was. They look like um they sort of came off like a punk rock rock kind of uh anarchist vibe, but they were wearing kilts. So I, I don't know what it was. I I was I was watching them when they were walking around, but I didn't know what, what they were up to. Any uh like logos or insignias on their shirts? They had something, but I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. But I bet you they will be at the Highland Games if there's kilts involved. <laughs> 
All right, Stomp. So uh, updates, uh, a couple of mountaineering updates. So last week we talked about uh, a what we had thought was a, a Sherpa, but was actually turns out to be a porter. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about the difference between that um, on K2. So we had spent probably about 10 minutes talking about the death of this this young man um, or above 8,000 meters on K2. And there was an article that came out right after that that interviewed Alan Arnett, who was a guest on our show, probably about um, 10 episodes back and he's the premier mountaineering sort of go-to person that talks about it and Alan had actually climbed K2 in uh, 2014. He was the oldest American to climb it so he was able to sort of give some really good insights into this article. Uh, a couple things that came out of this was um, this a clarification between of, of what this person who had died's duty was. This person was actually a porter which is different than a Sherpa. A Sherpa is a high altitude mountaineering experienced person that can go up and fix ropes and break out the climbing routes and has a lot of mountaineering experience. Porters are, they play a vital role, but generally they tend to stay in lower elevations, stay below 7,000 meters. Uh, They're critical for getting equipment and uh, food and setting up uh, different things around the different base camps and the higher elevation camps, but they're not an expert like a Sherpa would be. So um, it turns out that this person was working for, and and in addition to that, they also, the porters are typically an independent group that gets, I guess, engaged by the guide service companies separately as sort of subcontractors. So this person was a subcontractor of a porter service and was requested, you know, they needed extra hands on the high rope. So they requested that um, a couple of porters come up and uh, this this person that ended up dying volunteered uh, to, to come up and do the high rope setup, but was not qualified to do so. So um, it's yeah. interesting, like the porter service that he worked for, there was three of them that ended up getting tapped on the shoulder to go up into these high elevations. They do give them like clothing allowances and things like that. But this person actually didn't even have a full down suit like most most Sherpers and climbers would have. Or mittens. I mean, they, this person apparently was missing a lot of important gear to survive up there. Um, and when they found him, he was hanging upside down. His skin was exposed. I mean, this this article is really pretty stunning. And it talks about the uh, danger that the conga line of other teams were facing because apparently this this area is just below a giant... Uh, uh, what's a cornice that could collapse anytime and ice is constantly falling. So you're talking about um, potentially risking the lives of many people. So had, I guess the argument here is that had the, the woman's team that ultimately ascended and broke the record, had she stayed there causing the uh, bottleneck, it could have been a worse situation. So that was really insightful in that article. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was, yeah. you know, the, the, the lady who got a lot of the, the grief around um, stepping over um, a dead Sherpa. Really, the reality was is that they were all trying to help and they were stuck on, you know, there's no equivalent in the White Mountains, but, a, you know, pretend like you were stuck 
you know, halfway up Tuckerman Ravine in the middle of an avalanche warning. That was essentially what they, they had carved out like sort of a, a path on the side of the snowfield, and they're all stuck there yep. trying to help this person out. And at any moment, if, if anything lets loose, they're all going to die. Correct. So she, I mean, according to the article, she helped out along with her team members for an hour, hour and a half. And yeah. I mean, geez, and she still crushed the record. So that's yeah. amazing. I guess there's only so much you can do. And then they well, draw. Her, yeah. In her situation too, my understanding from reading this article is that she was running out of oxygen and her options were to either go back and it would have taken her longer to get oxygen or she would go forward to the support team that was waiting for them that actually had oxygen. So that was one of yeah. the main reasons why she moved forward was to get into a safe position and to get oxygen so that she didn't become a second person that needed a rescue. Sure. So I guess the uh, the other team that filmed them stepping over the body maybe jumped the gun and maybe might have been premature with their judgment. But um, boy, um, the other thing that uh, became apparent to me is that some of these guide teams or porter agencies may be exposed to some legal liability. Who knows what's going to happen with that? I don't know how you just say, hey, <laughs> you're going up to uh, handle some ropes that typically Sherpas handle. Um, uh, I don't know. It'll be inter- interesting to see how this all develops. Yeah, I mean, so the, I mean, Mohammed Hassan is the name of the person. So I think it's an interesting scenario because from Hassan's perspective, you know, it's a, a huge risk and he wasn't qualified to be up there. Right. But it was also also a huge opportunity you know there's that saying like fake it till you make it and sometimes you sort of put yourself out there in a work situation where you know you're in over your head but if you're successful you can grow your career pretty quickly right the reputation of being up there and being on the fixed rope team in that environment to support you know western climbers even though he wasn't qualified and probably wasn't going to be the person that did the best job, just the fact alone that he could sort of put that on his resume was probably a factor in this for him to say, like, I'm willing to take the risk so that in the future I can make even more money. And there's a very hierarchical, um, you know, culture there too. So he's, you know, a lot of times if they're told what to do, they're just going to do it. But I think that there was also that sort of prestige factor going into it as well. So do they not have mentors or anybody above them that, that can say, hey, listen, there's a, you know, yeah, you'll get the praise and glory, but you're not ready. I mean, it's I mean, based on this article, clearly, like they weren't thinking in those terms. They were thinking in terms of we need three warm bodies to be up there because we need all hands on deck. Yeah. And they weren't thinking of like, okay, safety was not paramount. It was let's get the bodies up there so we can get the climbers prepared, so we can get the route prepared for the climbers. Amazing. Crazy story, but it definitely reading all this stuff more and more like this high altitude mountaineering in the Himalayas is such a dicey proposition. Mm-hmm. Well, that segues into this next story. So apparently Nepal has banned solo hiking in these areas. What's your, what, what's your take on that? Especially following this thing. Yeah, I mean, I can understand it. Um, my, you know, briefly, I think that there's probably been a couple of scenarios where there's been solo hikers that are um, going out there and you know getting in trouble, or people having to stop their own climbs to help out with, you know, saving some of these hikers. So, you know, I think it makes sense, but. 
But that's the rub. Yeah. Like I mean, I mean, it's like it, are these are these guide services really as qualified as as you would hope they would be to have to do this requirement? Yeah, I mean, if if it's a pure assumption of risk, say this, say a solo hiker wants to do K two without help, should they just be allowed to do it because you're not going to get rescued anyway? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's not even the high altitude stuff. It's also it's like any national parks. Yeah, uh, you can't do solo hiking, so you have to have a, a guide or mm-hmm. um, something. Which I guess I mean they want to they want to focus on their uh, on their um, economy. So like I said, it is what it is. It's a beautiful place, and people are willing to spend the money. So you might as well just get yourself a guide and do it in a sure, more sure. luxurious way if you're gonna. You know, I think the mountaineering stuff's a little bit different, but the sure. the lower level, you know, the Annapurna circuit and things like that are, you know, just grab a guide, I guess. Hmm. Makes sense. Excellent stop. Uh, so moving on to um, additional news here. So mountain goats are killing dogs in Utah. So there's been three dogs that have been gored by goats. Um, so we saw a video last week we posted um, of a, a mountain goat that had sort of run by some hikers that were able to climb up the uh, the ledges to get away from it. But in this case here, this is in Mount Timpanogos, Utah. There's been uh, a warning for pet owners after mountain goats killed three dogs in front of their owners. So uh, the story goes on to talk about a hiker who had a golden doodle by the name of Lola. Uh, Lola decided that he sh- she was going to make friends with a mountain goat, and the mountain goat gored Lola, and Lola bled to death in her owner's arms. So, pretty sad story. They had to carry Lola's body down, and apparently, there's been two other gorings that have happened in uh, in recent months in that area there. So, uh, keep your dogs on a leash, know their limits, and know how to keep them under control and get their attention because it sounds like a lot of cases these dogs are like running off and wanting to just be curious about the goats and getting killed. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Wow. On the heels of crazy otters. Crazy otters, crazy <laughs> goats, crazy beers. <laughs> oh boy. All right, Stomp, you've got a question here about um, New Hampshire. Hey, this is interesting. Had a discussion with my folks and they said, hey, listen, we found out what the center of New Hampshire was. And they claimed that it was a Civil War era statue near their hometown. And I did a little more digging. And just in case anybody's interested, the geographic center of New Hampshire is located in the eastern part of New Hampton between Winona Lake and Jackson Pond. Um, there are coordinates actually, but uh, we'll skip that for now. West Pemigewasset Lake is in the center, and Winona Lake and Lake Wakiwan are in the northeast. So there you go. That is the central point of New Hampshire. How do they determine the central point of New Hampshire? Oh, it's probably geometry and quadrangles and all kinds of complicated things that we don't want to talk about on a hiking I wonder show. If it's do they just be? Do they? Um, they they must take the farthest western spot to the farthest eastern. Oh no, they don't actually. Do you want me to give you the coordinates? You can plug them. No, in. I'm looking at it right now. I'm looking at it right now. But it's okay. like it's much farther. It's not dead middle of north to south. 
No, no, definitely not. So the the southern part of the state is so wide, it would impact where it sits as you yeah. head north. But it's yeah. sort of interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, it definitely like if you were gonna if you were gonna say draw a bullseye on the state of New Hampshire, it's pretty much where I would where I would draw it. So yeah, it's good. And who knows if my folks are right, and it's at that statue, maybe there's some hidden treasure in there. Hmm. Could be. Could be very interesting. And Mike, we had a uh, a recent request by a listener to go over or at least direct them to some information regarding water gauge levels and how to read them and how to apply them uh, to you know any hike that they may be going on. So, any input on that? Yes. So we covered this in episode 104. So I'll link in the show notes. Uh, in addition to covering the the water levels, we also, um, Mike Masel from uh, Redline Guiding, he had given us a list of recommended hikes to go on when it is uh, rainy out. But essentially, um, what you want to do when you're planning your hike is, you know, you're going to do your weather piece. So you're going to go to the higher summits forecast, you're going to use mountain forecast, you're going to use the NOAA site, and then you're going to use whatever your Apple or Google weather. You know, you take a look at all four of those, sort of get your assessment on what the weather's going to be like, and then you're going to make your call. But in addition to that, you also want to check the water levels. So you can go and check the water levels on uh, water data dot usgs.gov slash new hampshire nh um and i'll include the link in the show notes and essentially what i will do and you know the advice that i've gotten is mostly just sort of baseline your assumptions on the outflow on the pemigewasset river in woodstock new hampshire that will generally tell you across the white mountains what is running hot and what is you know reasonable so i typically mm-hmm. will when you get this graph it defaults to a seven day view and stomp on maybe I'll maybe I'll do like a YouTube video on this and do like a screen share just to kind of go over it but um, what I do is that you can do seven day 30 day or one year view I'll do a I'll switch over to a one year view mm-hmm. and then you can also pivot over to um, look at the gauge height which is the sort of the level that the the water gauge is reading at which is typically for the chemical asset is between you know three feet and about eight feet um, or what I prefer to do, just because it's easier to sort of think through, is look at the discharge volume. Mm-hmm. And the discharge volume is measured in cubic feet per second. And you get this nice little graph. And typically what you want to look for is if the graph is reading a stream flow of over five or 600 stream flow feet uh, cubic feet per second, that's typically when you want to start saying like, okay, it, it's probably not a good idea to start uh, doing any river heavy river crossings. Things are going to be running hot. So for example, if you go back into uh, early June, the outflow was around 244 feet per or cubic feet per square foot. And it mostly stayed in that like 300 level um, up to 400 up until the middle of June. Then we had a big rain event. It spiked up to um, like 1,950 um, cubic uh, feet outflow. And then slowly over the last, like probably since the end of June up until, um, you know, looks like, 
it sort of settled down again in July. We had a period from July 25th to about early August where it was floating under 300 again. And then over the last probably um, three weeks or so, it's been up over 2,000 pretty consistently. It spiked up over to about 1,000. It's now down to, as of today, we're back down to 300 um, as the outflow. So that's basically what you want to do is just sort of take a look at that number and get a sense. Again, 600 or so is around where you get the danger zone. And, you know, ultimately that's where you got to make the decision. If you're going to have some big water crossings, then, you know, you've got to, you've got to make the decision on whether you want to mess around with those or not. Correct. Yep. So stream flow, 600 cubic feet. Per second is your sort of danger zone, and I always baseline against the PEMI. If you want to look at the Swift or you want to look at the uh, some other river, I think like the the outflow and the gauge height will differ. So you'll have to sort of figure out what the average is, and then make an assessment on whether or not you're going above average or below average. Okay. And traversing yeah, water is a whole different story. So we'll save that for another. <laughs> another episode yeah exactly i mean we talked about that a little bit before but like you know i i prefer to use hiking poles when i'm going over the water you know if you can walk on solid ground versus like um covered rocks that's always safer but not always possible and you know you always want to make sure that you don't have your backpack fully strapped to you because it's an anchor and um you know having somebody a little bit downstream that can catch you if you uh, you get knocked over, it's a good idea. But I, I usually like the the best approach on water risky water crossings is to turn around. Correct. Correct. Um, so, stop. New subject. I just wanted to give the listeners a heads up on this. Sure. Um, we've talked about a um, missing hiker, Michael Miller, who um, had gone missing in October of 1982, I think, sometime in the early 80s, maybe 83. And um, I had posted a summary of that event on the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit on Reddit, gave a summary of the uh, the events based on what was written in the Appalachia um, magazine, I think, in summer of 1984. Or sort of just said like, look, it's an unresolved mystery from the perspective of the, you know, he was, his body was never located. You know, he was wearing a leather jacket. He was wearing work boots. And, you know, maybe there's a chance that somebody could find some remains and, you know, get some closure to the family because he's never been found. And I think it's the only case that we know of at this point that, um, you know, and there's two other cases, but I think this is the one that's like, is pretty clear that he was lost on the mountain. Those other two cases, I think, have question marks on them. But mm-hmm. um, I got a response from, I believe, somebody that either is a friend of the family or somebody that is a family member. Just on the Reddit thread, I haven't, I don't follow up with family members or anything like that. They want to reach out to us; they're welcome to do so. But um, the one piece of information I just want to get out there is that they let me know that the main reason why Michael and his friends were up there was to take. Uh, photography of the foliage and um, he had a 35 millimeter camera on him and the the person who responded who I believe is a family member had indicated that they, they their feeling is that if anything had would have survived it would be the remains of that 35 millimeter camera oh sure yeah it's metal plastic yeah yeah so I wonder you know going up there with like a, a metal detector or something might be interesting okay Let's so, do it. Let's go. If anybody's, yeah, uh, maybe we'll go. But if anybody's, um, 
you know, wants to kick around their experience bushwhacker. I wouldn't tell anyone that doesn't know what the hell they're doing to, to try it. But, you know, it's, it's an interesting little lead. Sure. I've always been interested in trying to find Kate Matrasova's pack. It just seems like such a small, consolidated location just beyond Star Lake as you're heading up towards Adams. Anyway, that could be another adventure. Yeah, yeah. The other pack that that has never been found that I think is probably still out there is the um, Luis Chaput, who um, had been murdered um, right off of uh, Glen Boulder Trail in yeah. that area. Is I suspect strongly that whoever did it probably took the pack with them, but might have stashed it in the woods somewhere a little bit farther away from the crime scene. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, looking through, see if there was anything of value, and then just dumped it. So that that pack was a blue pack with a Canadian flag on it. So there are there's some mysteries out there for sure. Yeah, no question. Yeah. Um, all right, stop. So you had posted, you had put in another uh, article here about a Russian scientist falling 500 feet to his death, right. um, thanks to his hiking app. So I didn't get a chance to read this. This is on Outkick. It's dot com. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to do a summary on this one? Sure. It's interesting. I mean, the story is, is self-explanatory. This guy goes out there and I'm not sure if it's quote unquote his hiking app or a commercial hiking app that he was using, but he went out and the app took him right off uh, a cliff and he ended up sliding and falling and dying. But what's interesting about this article, the person that wrote it uh, is sort of snarky and came up with some advice, which I think is worth reading. <laughs> um, let's see. I think there's one or two paragraphs here. Oh, yeah, here it is. Ready? So, according to the writer, it's been a brutal 10-day stretch for the uh, Gardner Alps, according to German News, which reports there were four deaths in the mountains. In one case, 57-year-old woman slipped to her death as her husband watched in horror. There was also a 29-year-old woman from Austria who fell to her death. And then he continues, Hey, hikers, I know you want to experience the highest of highs by climbing those mountains, but you're in luck. There's a thing called Instagram where people can go up mountains to take photos. I get you. You want to be an explorer, but the second you start trusting an app to guide you up and down the mountain is the minute you might want to scroll through Instagram and live to fight another day. So basically he's saying stay home and stop killing yourself. And he goes on and on. Take your money uh, where you're going to, instead of spending it on hiking gear, uh, buy a nice dinner while looking at the mountains. And he goes on and on. So check it out. It's a pretty brutal and frank assessment from a writer. What a mean guy. Uh, Yeah, maybe. Maybe he's just angry that people are getting out there not crushing it like uh, some of these other people. But interesting stuff. Yeah. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? Stomp, you ready for a revolution? Uh, yes, I am. You want you want to do a revolution now, or you want to talk about a revolution that happened before? Let's just have one. Let's just do a revolution now. You just want to see what's going to happen? Well, why don't you tell me how they work, and then I'll just dive in. Well, typically, a bunch of rabble-rousers <laughs> will get together. They're disgruntled about um, whoever's in power, and they want to just, you know, overthrow whoever's in power. Right. Okay. Sounds good. 
it was easier back in the 1700s when there wasn't nuclear weapons and automatic <laughs> weapons and all that fun stuff. So I want to do a history segment here about the Pine Revolution. I'd never heard about this before. Yes, this came from Luke Kaladish, the pilot of the New Hampshire Army National Guard, who gave us this little tip on his way out the door after his uh, episode recording. So thank you, Luke. Much appreciated. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, they always talk about that sort of saying, the canary in the coal mine. And, you know, the idea was you would bring a canary down into the coal mine. And if the canary died, that was sort of the warning that things were going to be um, a little bit dangerous down in the mine. So you could get out early. And this particular warning, I think, was not picked up by the folks down in Boston. But uh, my understanding is this, this this was a rebellion that actually happened a couple of years before the American Revolution in Weir, New Hampshire. So 1772, this is known as the rebellion before the revolution, the Pine Tree Riot. So everybody knows that sort of the Stamp Act and um, you know the rebellion around tea and throwing stuff into the uh, the the Boston Harbor it was sort of the beginning of the American Revolution. But there was a lot of different policies that the the Crown had put in place that were getting um, getting citizens upset. One of which was um, you know grants for new townships would include a clause that reserved all white pine trees fit for creating mast for the Royal Navy would be restricted to the King of England. So this created some tension amongst the town folks because um, it was sort of a policy that was well known, but um, there was a fine of five pounds and all the lumber made from such a tree would be forfeited. So colonists were never happy about this and where was an area that was uh, was noted for many large, tall pine trees. So um, in that area too is Goffstown and a couple of other towns where you know they had a number of sections of large white pine that were used. So um, by 1770, so there was always tension around this, but by 1771, Governor John Wentworth was appointed. Um, a surveyor of the king's woods. So he had a bunch of deputies that would travel through the states essentially to enforce this law. So I think that enforcement was pretty lax. So um, these sawmills would be working and they would typically sort of just, you know, cut down trees and, and do their thing and hope that no one would, would, would call them out on it. But unfortunately, when Wentworth um, set out and he had his deputies enforcing this law, um, they had, um, you know, they ran into some trouble. So there was a deputy, deputy by the name of John Sherburn who visited Weir in that area, um, and he found that there was a lot of these pine logs at um, a couple of different mills. So 270 logs that were between 17 and 36 inches. So I think anything that was bigger than 15 inches was was basically the king's. So um, my understanding of this is what happened is that, you know, you get this enforcement, um, they had gone over to Goffstown in addition to Weir, and they had fined probably around 10 or 12 of these farmers and, um, and mill operators, and they had actually arrested all of them, but agreed that like they, they were going to go home, get money for bail, and then they would settle up like the next morning. Um, but unfortunately, when they let these let these 10 guys go, 
there was a they all got together and decided that they were going to push back. So the deputies were staying in a house in the area. Um, I guess Hollis is the another one of the towns, mm-hmm. and you know they they arrested these these ten people. One of the guys was a guy by the name of Ebenezer Mudgett. So um, they allowed him to go home, and the lawmen were staying at an inn close by. And Mudgett sort of got everyone together and they created a plan where they decided to go to the inn, wake up the sheriff, let him know that they had the bail money. And then um, when the sheriff got out of bed, the, um, the a bunch of people were dressed up with – they had their faces blackened and they held a bunch of rods and stuff like that. They took the guns away and they also – I guess shave the horses, which which makes their them not valuable. Hmm. So um, they sent the king's men sort of on their way, and from there, um, you know, eventually they were they were brought to court and set on trial. But um, you know, apparently they, I guess they got light fines, and there was a lot of demonstration. So they got off a little light. With it, and then about seventeen months later was when another group of men um, went into the Boston Harbor. So that was sort of the first signs of revolution and pushing back against sort of the the king's dictates with violence or at least intimidation amongst the the townsfolks. But um, fast forward seventeen months later, and you know you've got a full on revolution that kicks off. Come in, let's go. You're in, you're in. So, um, stop. I also, and I thought this was interesting. So it was basically a dispute. We've talked about this before around the sort of the tension amongst the, the, the small farmers and the mill operators and the big, um, you know, the, the big logging barons, but we didn't really talk about like sort of the, the government pushing on, um, on these folks to tax them for, for, for timber. So it's interesting. The governor that was involved in this, John Wentworth, um, he's got a very complicated and interesting history as a loyalist. So he was born in the States. Um, his father was a was a rich guy that you know had connections in England. Sent him to England for schooling. Uh, he married, I think, a woman that was uh, from England as well, from the UK. Uh, came back over, was you know very involved in the economy in Boston and Portsmouth, and um, you know various different uh, appointed roles. He, matter of fact, he was the one that had um, established a different county. So when you look at Rockingham County and Grafton County and all these different counties in New Hampshire, he, I think he picked like five county names based on friends of his that he worked for in the government. So his, the prime minister was a Rock, Rockingham. So that was sort of his right, he was the right-hand man of this Rockingham prime minister in the UK. So Wentworth is responsible for a lot of the naming of the counties that, that are familiar now. Um, he was a pretty capable governor, uh, and he did attempt to keep the peace in the early days of the revolution. So he did his best to sort of settle things down and contain the revolution and the fighting that was going on in Boston. And he did a number of different, different actions in and around Portsmouth and Dover to sort of quell any violence that went that was that could have happened eventually he did have to depart he settled in boston on the in the in the 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 british side but 
Uh, he went back to Britain. Then he settled in Nova Scotia. Yeah, so he was in, you know, basically running Nova Scotia and and some of the Maritimes up there. His wife had an affair with the Prince of uh, of England as well. So she was forty one. The Prince was like twenty one. Wentworth was never around. So the the wife was a, I guess she was a, a somebody that was into power and prestige. So she had a pretty sordid affair with the Prince of England. Oh, classic. Yep. Interesting. Now, was Wentworth the named after the, uh, is the town named after him? I would think so. I'll have to double check that, but I think that it has to be the connection. Yeah, so Wentworth is off of Route 25. That's sort of the western part of the state as you head towards uh, Vermont. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's like close to um, Musilaki in that area. It's on the western side of Musilaki, I think. Yeah, Warren, Wentworth, Rumney. Yeah. Uh, great hiking out there, people. We we don't talk about that strip enough. It's such a great I know, area. I know Black Mountain, and uh, uh, I am going to talk about Smarts Mountain. So okay. today, so that's that is one. So, but yeah, Cube, and uh, we talk about it a little bit. But yeah, it's it's a great area. Yeah, for sure. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stump. Um, all right, uh, Stump, I got some pop culture talk here. Or like um, sporting event stuff, too, that I'm into. But okay, <laughs> anything that you want to talk about? Um, <laughs> not sports. <laughs> No, but I'll I'll listen. I'm a fair weather fan, but I okay, will listen. Yeah, so. so I completed The Witcher. I thought that <laughs> season three was really good, uh, but I don't know if I'm going to like like uh, having a new, you know, a new character play uh, play The Witcher. So we'll see. Yeah. But I definitely recommend if you haven't watched that series, it's worth checking out. And sure. then for my cycling fans, in two days the Volta um, España starts. So if you like cycling and you like oh. uh, mountains and the scenic views in Spain, then it's definitely worth checking out. It's on the Peacock Channel. Oh, see, I can handle that. I yep. thought you were going to take me into the world of uh, baseball or football. I'd have to kill myself live on air. No, no, I do like baseball too. I, I like um, all those sort of sports that you can turn on in the background and, and sort of engage and then disengage with. So cycling gotcha. great that way. Baseball's great that way. Sure, sure. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, all right, stop. So uh, we got an advertiser here. You want to go? Yes. Let me pull her up right here on my phone. Let me put on my readers, my ever increasingly powerful readers. Vaucluse gear. Do you have a sweat problem? Sweat can be extremely uncomfortable on the trails. Plus, sweat is a serious risk factor. As your clothes get wet, your core temperature can dramatically fluctuate. This can result in hypothermia, heat exhaustion, and dehydration. We've got good news at Slasher for you. There's a piece of gear that solves the sweat problem. Vaucluse's Ultralight Ventilation Backpack Frame. The frame is a backpack accessory that easily installs in your favorite pack, size 15 liters to 65 liters, and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack. It's also ultralight, weighing less than a pair of socks at just over three ounces. So whether you're hiking in hot or cold temps, the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow and ventilation. 
Visit ValcluseGear.com to order an ultralight ventilation frame today. Use promo code SLASHER to enjoy a $5 discount. And plus, you let them know that Mike and Stomp sent you. And hey, everybody, thank you for uh, supporting Valcluse. We um, got word that some more uh, frames went out this week, and uh, that's fantastic. It's always great to support the sponsors. Yep, yeah, and I definitely um, have enjoyed using mine, and I've been less sweaty than I normally am, although I don't sweat that much, Stomp. No, you don't. I sweat like a dog. It's just individual chemistry, I guess. Yeah, it must be the German in you. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. Is that going to get me canceled? I'm sorry. I love Germany. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Let's see. Hey, stickers. Anybody need stickers? You can still get them at Ski Fanatics off Exit 28 in Campton, New Hampshire. And Spinner's Pizza Parlor off of Dascom Road, Route 93 in good old Massachusetts. When you go there, say hello to Dolls and Pops. And of course, if any... What t- what town are they in, Stop. They are in Andover. Did I say... Okay, you got it right. You always say North Andover. So I just wanted to catch you. <laughs> hey, by the way, did you hear about the flooding down there in North Andover? I did, yes. Holy moly. Yeah, we used to live right across the way from the area that got flooded. And uh, Dolls and Pops live local there, too. So a couple restaurants got demolished. Really bad scene. So the community's coming together, trying to raise funds for them to get them on their feet again. Bakery got flooded. Bad. Bad stuff. Wow. Yeah. And then uh, back to advertising. If anybody wants to advertise on the podcast, we have a ton of options. Just send us a uh, a direct message on Instagram or Facebook, and uh, we'll hook you up with some info. All right, Stomp, what are you drinking tonight? Anything good? Yeah, I haven't even opened it yet. I have a, uh, here, let me show you. A oh, yeah, I've had those. Have I've you had those? those? Okay, so this yeah. is a Bee Hoppy. It's from Wormtown Brewery, which is in Worcester, Massachusetts, and it's an India Pale Ale, um, 6.5% alcohol, and uh, yeah, big citrus flavor, copious amounts of hops. So I don't know what that means, but it's copious. And uh, let's check it out. Ah. Yes, here we go. What do you think? That's not bad. Yeah, it's really nice, actually. That's great. Yeah. I give it a 6.5. What you got? We should start doing like the numbers thing. (laughs) Dave Portnoy on Barstool. Um, I have a... I have a new Mrs. Mike got got some new beer. She's going. Uh, she's getting me beer, which is good. She's like, you need to have a beer for the show. So she's a little bit kind of into it. Mm-hmm. But it's called Cloud Candy, and it's from Mighty Squirrel Brewing Company, which is out of Waltham, Massachusetts. All right, Massachusetts, yeah, stepping yeah. up to the plate. Cloud Candy, which is great, delicious. All right, Stomp, any hikes for you recently? How's your foot feeling? Mm, I am back to, well, let me let me say 99%. I'm back to running. I actually tackled my pre-Mount Washington course, the two-miler that I was doing over here in the Waterville Estates, without a problem. And I think the biggest reason uh, was the addition of some wonderful new shoes. So I ended up going over to... Um, well, it's a funny story. So I ended up going to La Hoots first in Lincoln, and they tried to sell me on some shoes that were just not 
quite as firm as I needed. And of course, you know, your family was suggesting that I go with the rock plates. So I did some research about those. And um, before I took the drive over the Kank, I called REI first. And they, this really wonderful person in the uh, shoe department suggested that I go with a Solomon. And um, that's what I ended up ultimately doing. But Unfortunately, REI did not have them, so I went to our good friends at EMS. They had them, and I tried them, and um, I've been using the Solomon XA Pro 3D, which is more or less, I mean, it might as well be a rock plate, because you can really only bend the toe box, and the rest of it is very firm, and it's designed for rugged terrain, so it's been really supportive, and uh, yeah. So now that I've got the running down pad again, I will start hitting some trails soon for some bigger hikes. All right. Yeah. You've got a week off, so don't come back to episode 120 without at least a couple of good hikes to share with the, with the listeners. I know, I know. I'm, I'm on the chopping block. I get it. Yep. <laughs> uh, and I did not go hiking this weekend. I was down in North Carolina and Tennessee and Virginia, um, dropping off one of my kids to college. And then uh, we did college tours for my youngest one. So we went out to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Uh, but we drove over from Elon, North Carolina. So we were able to go through, took Route 40 and went across the Smoky Mountains. But I stopped over in Asheville, North Carolina, because I had to see this place stomp. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it gets a lot of hype. You've heard of Asheville, right? Sure. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It's Which beautiful. it was nice. It was more. I was expecting North Conway, Lincoln, and I got Berlin. So I was a little surprised. <laughs> oh, that they're two different sides of the spectrum, really. When you think yeah, about it, yeah, yeah. It was just more. Um, well, I don't know. It just seemed more um, industrial than than touristy than I expected. I thought it was going to be much more touristy. But again, in my def- in in Asheville's defense, it was really a quick stop because we had like maybe an hour to sort of poke around and yeah. you know, we had to get over to Knoxville for a tour. So I didn't really get to see all that there is. It was just a quick drive by and a poke in there. But definitely worth checking out again in the mountains around there. Like we drove through the Smokies and uh, it's beautiful there. Definitely worth checking out. Like they have some amazing... Uh, views. We crossed the Appalachian Trail, and we we you know we were up in Virginia as well into the Shenandoahs, and it's a beautiful area of the country. Yeah, interesting that you mentioned Berlin because that's that's more or less like post-industrial. I mean, they have all the old mill buildings and things, but they're dead. So now they're yeah. thriving on the uh, income that's brought in by the ATVs and you know lodging and you know, commerce from tourism. So it's very, it's a whole different scene up there now, but it's very uh, rural in a sense. It seems it still has that vibe. Yeah. Yeah. I just sort of associate it as being like a bigger place than like North Conway and in Lincoln for whatever. It's probably not, but it just feels like a, a bigger area for whatever reason. Asheville was just bigger than I expected, I guess. Huh? Okay. So, but it was cool. I'm definitely going to go back and check it out. I have a feeling that we've got some listeners from down in that area. They're going to message me and yell at me to be like, oh, you missed a million things here. But I, And I get it. I was only there for a little while. But uh, definitely worth checking out. And it was fun to go through there. And the colleges out there, Stomp, are unbelievable. Like They're like country clubs. Yeah, I can imagine. Hey, I yeah. just want to tag on one thing here. Um, I got to have dinner with few of my daughters last night and my oldest who's 25 is leaving for South Korea uh, 
very soon for an entire year. Awesome. So she's um, she went through you know her her graduate postgraduate work and went into Montessori. So she's teaching in English in South Korea for the next year. So I just wanted to say, Evelyn, I love you very much. Be safe and uh, good luck. It's super time of your life. Yep. And Evelyn, yeah. if you listen to the show, if things are going bad and you're stressed out under no circumstances, <laughs> should you decide to take the run for the North Korea demilitarized zone? <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah. DMZ? No. Not yep. good. Yeah. Just, you know, <laughs> call home. And, you know, settle down. So, um, but no, that's great. Yeah. And I've heard a lot of people that have done, I've run into people that have done that. Like they've gone to um, different countries in Asia to, to, to teach English and it's a really great experience. So mm. hopefully, um, Michelle, fun. My understanding in South Korea is that it's very common for them to ask your Briggs Myers mm-hmm. uh, personality type. So she oh, should really? take her Briggs Myers. I'm sure they'll do cultural training before she gets there. Interesting. Well, she's a she's a fanatic of the culture anyway. She loves the culture. I'm sure she's yeah. very keyed in on that. But I'll mention that. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Excellent. So uh, notable hiker stomp. Notable hikes. Yes, we have a few this week. Um, thank you for tagging us. If anybody's interested in getting tagged and uh, plugged on the podcast, just tag us on your post on Instagram and we will mention it. So we have JCO Run uh, was up on Crawford Notch. They did a Crawford Notch loop. This is interesting. So Willie House to Willie uh, to Field Tom and then to Pierce via Crawford, Mitzvah Hut. Mount Jefferson and Mount Webster Cliff Trail. That's a big loop. Wow. No kidding, right? That's that's new and fresh. Nice work. It's always cool people making these new uh, adventures for others to try out. Yeah, you know what? I In all my years, of, I've never considered that you could definitely do that as a loop. I mean, it's a it's a beast of a loop, but that right. that's an awesome hike. Yeah, that's super cool. Very fresh. A-bomb underscore Graham. Uh Cannon halfway through a single f- cannon. Oh, <laughs> my typo. Cannon. So halfway through a single season forty-eight. Nice work. Rhonda Willette sixty-eight uh, is at thirty to forty out of the forty-eight uh, as she just finished. Uh, Tomfield Willie and Avalon. Crescendas twenty-five. I think this was the first time up. Ajia Kajok, aka Mount Washington. Nice work. A. Folsom 33 hit the Bold Coast Trail. And I apologize, I did not get to really dig into this trail, but the pictures were stunning. We may have to mark that one for future reference. Hiking Fees My Soul did the Wildcats and then Avalon, uh, Tomfield, and Willie. Two separate events, I believe. Rev JMG hiked up Cabot and Wombeck on their quest for the 48, adding with the views the Horn and Star King. So that was 31 out of 48. And then for the partner there, it was 39 out of 48. Nice job. And then B. Lafert chased, this is quote unquote, chased sweet for an eight hour Prezi Traverse. So I'm assuming that means this individual was chasing the notorious or infamous Eric Todd Sweet on a Traverse. We'll need confirmation on that, but thanks for tagging us, everybody. And Mike, any tag stand out here? 
Um, I got distracted because I was looking at um, what the Bold Coast Trail is. It's a four and a half mile uh, trail in the Cutler Coast along some uh, some beautiful main coastline. Okay. So I didn't hear all of them stop. So gotcha. I'm going to have to have you. Um, well, I think your first your response to that new fresh loop, uh, the Crawford yeah, yeah, Notch like loop, that. was pretty good. So let's go with that one. Yeah, that they, they, they that uh, the person that did that should name that loop, like call it the Willie Loop or something. Absolutely, yeah, the Willie Webster Loop. Yeah, that's the way it works. You get a couple people to do it, put it uh, up on the old FKT site, and boom, there you yeah. go. Yeah, that's right. Nice. Stomps, stomps Lodge to Dodge. Yeah, I think we have three or four people that have finished that now. Yes, we have. So, um, all right, stop. So I want to do a little segment here. Uh, we're wrapping up for the summer, so we didn't have a guest this week. So I wanted to just uh, call out a couple of hikes that we have. And, and I probably talked about these in the past, but um, I wanted to just sort of call them out and highlight them, especially I think they're pretty good fall foliage hikes as we get later on in the year. So um, I picked four. So stop. I'm going to challenge you to pick a couple of hikes that you haven't talked about before to make recommendations. So okay. uh, I have notes ahead of time. You're going to need to do it on the fly because I warned you before the show started and you said, I'll just wing it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. So I can't say anything I've already talked about? No. Oh, damn. That's a twist. Or in a while. Because <laughs> so, okay. you, you're just going to be like, oh, the Algonquin Trail. Or yeah, 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 yeah. No. We want to avoid that. I agree. Yep. All right. So the first one I am going to call out is um, Smarts Mountain. So I did this probably two or three falls ago. Um, I actually left from the Dartmouth Skiway and I took the Lambert Ridge Trail up and then um, I cut over to the Hexacube Shelter. So I didn't up and over because we were doing a two night on Mount Cube. But I highly recommend Smarts Mountain. It's a nice trail. You can go up a couple of different directions here and it's got a nice fire tower up top so you can climb up and get some good views. And then it also has a little cabin at the top, so you can stay over there if you want to do a backpacking trip. Um, it's got an outdoor privy, so um, if I recall correctly, this is a it's an open air privy uh, that's close to the the fire tower, so you can go and um, do nature's business out in nature, but in a hole. Oh, lovely. Yes, so it's it's really nice up there, and it's it is on the fifty two with a view list. It's right on the Appalachian Trail, so you'll probably see some through hikers, and it's really got some on the lower elevations as you come up from the southern approach. And the Dartmouth Skiway has some amazing um, foliage views if you hit it in the right time. Mm-hmm. So cool. I don't know. Have you ever been on Smarts Mountain? I have not, unfortunately. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So. Highly recommend that. I'll include the GPS track that I took on this. And again, it connects to Mount Cube, so you can do it as a two-day. I guess you could do it as a crazy one-day long hike if you wanted to as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the next hike that I wanted to recommend to people, Stomp, is um, is the Shelburne Mariah um 52 with a view hike. So this is a separate peak from Mount Moriah. Um, so the trailhead to get to this, you can you can combine this with any of the normal hikes that you would do with Mount Moriah and do an out and back, or you can approach this from Rattle River, which is off a of Route 2 um, up in Shelburne, Maine by Gorham. So uh, it's pretty far north. And then you can take Rattle River and then cut over to the left, and that will take you to the Shelburne Moriah Trail, and you can take the summit the um, 
the views out there are amazing. So it sort of gives you a view out into Evans Notch and then the backside of the um, you know Carter Wildcat Range. So it's really good open air summit. Uh, there's some cool mud bogs up top on the summit, and there's a bunch of different like areas that you can go check out. You can even sort of look north up into uh, to Maine and out to uh, Vermont as well. Cool, cool. Yep. So I'll include the GPS track for that, and then um, the third hike that I wanted to recommend is Mount Carrigane. So this is a a pretty classic route loop where you. Uh, park at the AMC uh, trailhead here. So um, it is off of Shem Valley Road. And then the you'll take the Manning Trail to start off with. And uh, you'll go up into the... Um, you'll follow the Manning Trail up to, I think it's a sub-peak called Firescrew. Uh, mountain, and then you get up to the top. There is some construction going on with the fire tower, so I don't know. Some of it may be inaccessible for um, the next month or so, but I don't really. Know. I can't remember the details on that. And then uh, what you would do is come down the Mowgli Trail, and then reconnect back with the. Um, or you could take the whole trail if you really want to, but then you reconnect with the Clark, tra- or you'll connect with the Clark Trail, and then finish up back onto the Manning Trail from there. And there's a bunch of different approaches there, but this is just the way that I came. Okay. Awesome views, tons of uh, sort of open ledges that you can hike on, so highly recommend Mount Cardigan. Yeah, I've done that a few times too. Very nice. Yep. Yep, and then last but not least, I would, uh, I'm going to recommend number four. It's a 4,000 footer. This is hiking the Hancocks. But instead of going up the normal North Hancock Trail, uh, what you're going to do is when you get to the the bottom section, the low point of the rear of the the um, the North Hancock Trail, you're going to just go over to your left about a hundred feet, and then you're going to actually go up the arrow slide directly. So um, this is an open slide. It's There are some sketchy spots, so you have to be comfortable with sort of open slab and doing slides and being off trail a little bit. Um, you have to make sure you pick a dry day, but go up the arrow slide, gives you amazing views all the way. And then once you get to the top of the slide, you can either go left or right. What you're going to do is stay to the right, and then you'll find yourself a nice little herd path that will take you right to the summit of... North Hancock, and then you're going to surprise all the hikers that are up on the summit. They're going to wonder where you came from. (laughs) Nice. Yep. So, again, just to summarize, Smarts Mountain via uh, Lambert Ridge, Shelburne Mariah via Rattle River, Mount Cardigan Loop, um, where you're going to take um, the Manning Trail up to the summit and then reconnect back down uh, via the Carter Trail. And then the Hancock Loop, but instead of going up the North Hancock Trail, you're going to go to the left a little bit, cut up and go directly on to the Arrow Slide, and then reconnect with the North Hancock Trail on the right side of the slide as you get to the top. Okay. That gets you 352 with the views and two 4,000-foot summits. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are all great hikes for the fall. They're all great hikes in um, you know late summer as well. So get out there and go nuts. 
Anybody that does these hikes and then tags us as a notable hike, I will automatically give you hike. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> That's great. So, All right. um, any any hikes come to mind for you, Stomp? Sure. Yeah. Let me uh, delete the ones I can't mention. I was going to mention a couple, and I'll just touch upon them just so you know. I was going to mention the Percy Peaks, uh, which is up in Stark, North, uh, was it Nashstream Forest? North Percy yeah, that's is- That's a great one. Yeah, North Percy is beautiful. It's just probably one of the most recognizable mountains in the area with that gigantic granite dome. So that's a nice one, 4.4 miles out and back, Nashstream Forest, 800 foot prominence, elevation is 3,400. Easy peasy, a little steep, and it can be treacherous if it's wet, but uh, definitely consider that one. I was going to mention the Squam Traverse, Mike, but uh, I don't know. We did that, what, last year? We did. I did. Yeah, well, we did. So, just briefly, 11.2 miles. You can grab it from the uh, Squam side of Sandwich Notch Road. Your elevation gain is only 2,600 feet over that 11.2, but it just gives you the most amazing views of the Squam Lakes, and you cover several mountains. Mount Livermore, Doublehead, Percival, Morgan, Squam. It's its just awesome. It's not too demanding if you're looking for uh, an entry-level kind of uh, traverse. And um, that brings me to something I haven't done in a very long time, but I've done it twice from both directions, which is the Carter-Mariah Traverse. And is that a fair game since you mentioned uh, Shelburne? Yes, that's fine. Okay, so... You can either tag on uh, the Wildcats, starting at the Glen Boulder Trailhead, or you can start at the northern end uh, at Mount Moriah. But this traverse is a little bit more demanding. It's 20 miles, but in my recollection, it's mostly a lot of those purposeless ups and downs and just beautiful views along the way. It's fantastic. Um more challenging area might be closer to the Carter Dome area. Where you, if you're coming from the south and going north, you're going to have to ascend to Carter Dome, which is really challenging. But right after that, you get the beauty of Mount Height. And uh, again, it's just a beautiful traverse, uh, but again, lengthy, 20 miles. So something to consider. There was a recent rescue um, on Real Brook Trail. This is an odd one. It's It's... Not heard too often and not frequented too often, but this is on Route 112. Uh, so basically, if you drive 112, which is the Kank from Lincoln, past Kinsman Notch, you will uh, come to an intersection with 116, which heads north towards uh, Franconia. And as you're heading north, you'll see a small little hidden sign that says Real Brook, and that's R-E-E-L. And what's great about this trail, um, it takes you right up to the Kinsman Ridge Trail. And from there, you can either head north to the Kinsman or south to Mount Wolf. Uh, it's very nice. And what's really nice about it is that it's just not that frequented. You won't see many people up there at all. And uh, last but not least, uh, this is one of my favorites with uh, Mrs. Stomp for sure. It's the Bald Knob Mount Crosby Loop, and that is located in the Hebron Groton area in the Cockermouth Forest. So Cockermouth is neat. This is a uh, an area of land. It's about 1,000 acres, and it was donated back in 1991 by William Wadsworth. 
but the location of this area is neat because when you get up to the summit, you can actually see the backside of Tenny Mountain with all the um, uh, the windmills, and um, it's a nice entry level loop, uh, maybe fourish miles, not too bad. Mount Crosby is two thousand feet. 2,222 feet and Bald Knob is 2,000. So modest elevation, but very remote and again, not too many folks out there. So that's all I got, Mike, on the fly. Can you just put that list in the show notes so that I can put the list in the script so I can add those to the show notes? Oh, sure. If you have them. Yeah, no no doubt. Yep. So that way I I can share them with the listeners. I will do that. So we are on to um, search and rescue news. So uh, national news here, Stomp. So uh, friend Martin, thanks for him for sending this in. Um, There was a missing couple that we had talked about um, probably a week or two ago. Um, They had been found. So this was a couple from Tennessee that um, was vacationing in Alaska. And sorry, this isn't like a weird news article that's pulling up here. So uh, this couple vanished about a week ago while hiking in Alaska. They were found safe last Friday, about two miles from their car. So um, the couple was a 50-year-old fifty-year-old gentleman and a 37-year-old uh, lady couple. Um, they were spotted by a hiker as they wandered through the woods in Fairbanks, a city with a population of more than 30,000. So they had survived eight days in the wilderness after losing their way on what was supposed to be a brief hike on an established trail. So um, I guess the one of the hiker's uncles had sort of given people given the the writer the article so uh, the, f- the family member that was quoted in the article says he believes they became dazed and confused by the 20 hours of sunlight per day in the state paired with temperatures that can drop to 45 degrees during the four hours of twilight they were lost disoriented or they would have been out of there um, I've got red flags going off all over the place here but um, okay um <laughs> There was a picture of the guy that was lost covered in dirt, and uh, he was wearing an Alaska T-shirt. He was standing by his father, um, who I guess was helping with the search, so he had gone up there. So um, I guess they never checked out of their Airbnb rental. They left all their luggage behind, and uh, they found the car that they were renting at the, the trailhead. And um, from there, I guess it was eight days out in the wilderness. So, damn, that's a long time. Yeah, yeah. And the weird thing about it is that uh, apparently this guy fancies himself a bit of a hiker. And he posted on his Facebook before uh, he was going out on the hike that, um, and this was Al had actually tipped me off to this this piece of it. So thanks to our friend Al, who sends in a lot of info. Uh, this The guy that got lost his name is um jonas barry 
he had posted on his Facebook account that uh, I'm not going to get lost like I did 10 years ago in Australia in the Katoomba range. If a Kodiak gets me, I'll consider that an honorable death. He wrote in one of the August 8th posts on Facebook. So, um, interesting. this whole thing just seems really weird. Yeah, it does. So, um, yeah, we'll have to... uh, We'll have to see if anything else comes of this one. It just seems weird that they would have been out there for eight days. It seems weird that this guy had been lost before, and um, the whole thing just seems very odd. Mm-hmm. All right, stop. Let's get to less odd stuff. Let's get to the sort of the standard New Hampshire search and rescue news. So we have four articles of, um, but some of these articles have like multiple rescues to them. So I think there's five or six articles. So first one is an injured hiker on Mount Willard. So 55-year-old female hiker from Belmont was hiking with a friend on Mount Willard a short time um, after going down from the summit. Uh, She had slipped and twisted her ankle. She was unable to bear weight and continued down the trail. So her companion hiked down the trail and notified staff from the Highland Center, who then called 911 to report the incident. Um, My recollection of that area stomp is that there's not great cell phone connection, but I'm assuming... You know, at some point, the the companion might have been able to call 911. Maybe they didn't have a phone. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Um, conservation officers. So this start, this happened at 320 was when the call went out. Um, conservation officers, um, along with members of Lakes Region Search and Rescue, responded to the incident. Yeah. The hiker was assessed, stabilized, placed in a litter, and carried down the trail to the parking area by about 5.30, and um, the hiking companion took her to the hospital for evaluation. So all's well that ends well. Yes, for sure. Good job, Lakes Region. Yes. Is there a reason why Lakes Region goes up that far? This, it's really funny you mentioned that because an astute listener uh, sent a message earlier pointing that out, saying, hey, why didn't some other team go? And... Um, Generally, you know, all the teams, it's it's mutual aid. So any team can go anywhere if it's needed. So mm-hmm. I really don't know. Um, you can speculate and say some teams might have been on a different mission or um, it, who knows. Um, PEMI Search and Rescue would certainly go to Mount Clinton Road, Mount Jackson, Mount Willard, Willard if needed. Um, Lakes may be seen a little proximate to that area as well. Uh, Route 16 corridor, the Lakes Region Mountains. So, yeah, who knows? Good question, yeah, though. I mean, I would assume, like, a best, especially people from, like, Tamworth and North Conway in that area, there's probably a mix of, like, maybe um, Androscoggin doesn't need as many people. So people have been doing Lakes Region because that's a newer um search and rescue team and maybe it's just easier to get people up from North Conway that happen to be on Lakes region. Who knows? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Who knows? It's, it's the call of a fishing game. Yeah. Interesting. So it's just, it's, it's like, um, it's a good problem to have for sure, because that location (laughs) you could, you could tap any, any of the rescue teams. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. So uh, the next one is a uh, lost hiker located on Tumbledown Dick Mountain, which is, um, so this was a uh, female hiker uh, from Wolfsboro, New Hampshire. She was hiking with a dog when they became disoriented. She called 911 after attempting to return her vehicle on present, va- on 
Pleasant Valley Road. This is in Brookfield, New Hampshire. So officers located her about a half a mile from the trail and brought her back to her vehicle without incident. So the call came in at 7.30, and um, she was back to her car by 10.30. So um, pretty pretty basic search here. I don't know where Tumble Down Dick Mountain is. I have no idea either. I love the name. It's classic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we should find out. Isn't there a, uh, a Tumble Down Dick Mountain in Maine as well? I don't know. There is. There's one in Gilead which is in Evans Notch, and then there's one in Peru, and then this one in Brookfield. This is by, um, hmm. yeah, it's by Wolfboro. And, uh, Brookfield. Wow, I yeah, have no so idea. So it's, it's, it's local. Okay. To uh, Lake Wentworth. Huh. I guess, yeah, it's Lakes Region. Okay. So I'll have to check it out. But that's interesting that there's three mountains, two in New Hampshire and one in um one in oh one in New Hampshire and two in Maine that are tumble down deck. I'm gonna have to do some research on that name origin. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing with Bald Knob and <laughs> Black Mountain. I mean, how many of these are there? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll do some research and get back to the listeners here. Yeah. Uh, next up, two hikers rescued in Franconia Notch. So uh, August 20th, 3.30, a solo hiker on the Kinsman Ridge Trail contacted 911. Medical incident was unsure if he'd be able to continue. The hiker had summited Mount Kinsman and was on his way to the trailhead at Lafayette Campground. Um when the event occurred. So a conservation officer was able to make his way to the summit um, of Cannon by ATV and then walk to the hiker's location, meeting him around 5.30 on the cannonballs. The conservation officer was able to assist the hiker down the trail and they arrived at Lafayette Campground around 8.30. So it was a 60-year-old hiker from Londonderry. Family member came to the trailhead to, took, uh, to take the, uh, the hiker for further evaluation. And then at the same time, because, you know, you can never just have one rescue in the Franconia region when one goes on, another one happened about an hour later. Fishing Game was made aware of an injured hiker on falling waters. Uh, But a mile and a half up the trailhead, 43-year-old female had fallen on wet rocks in the vicinity of Cloudland Falls. So a rescue party of volunteers from PEMI Search and Rescue and Conservation Officers was organized and... The first rescuers uh, arrived at the injured hiker around 5.20. I wonder if they were already staging for this other one and then they just redirected them um, because it seems like a pretty quick turnaround. But Hmm. uh, first rescuers arrived at the injured hiker at 5.20. The hiker was slowly making her way down the trail. Once the rescue litter arrived, it was decided to carry her out. And by 6.30, they had arrived at the trailhead. So only about um, two hours the hiker was identified as a female from Quebec, and they had hiked up to Shining Rock. She had hiked up with her family, and then when they were coming back down, um, she slipped. And the husband was able to stabilize the injuries and make the call for help. Family of five, they were well prepared for the hike. So, hmm. Fishing Game put a, th- put a notice at the end of this one saying, Steady rain has fallen over the months of June, July, and August. Slippery trail conditions have led to many injuries, and um, appropriate footwear should be worn while hiking. <laughs> wow. Um, 
so then we move on to, uh, and this happened the day before, so August 19th on Saturday, um, search and rescue received multiple back-to-back hiker emergency calls. So the first one happened at 5.30 from Mount Washington State Park. There was a group of hikers uh, that notified uh, 911 that uh, the party had slowed down significantly. There was two hikers from Nashua, two female hikers that um, were about a half a mile below the summit. And they were right at the junction below Lion's Head Trail and found to be extremely wet and cold. So this one could have been really bad. Um, Rescues provided the hikers with warm, dry clothes and attempted to keep them moving. Extremely slow progress, so they got additional help. Um, A variety of different search and rescue teams and um, fishing game conservation officers and state park officials came down from the summit. Uh, to help these hikers to provide additional assistance. They were able to uh, get both of the patients to the summit where they were loaded into vehicles and driven back down the mountain. So everybody arrived safely at the bottom around 9 p.m. So um, they were both evaluated, and one of them was transported to Androscoggin Valley Hospital in Berlin for further evaluation uh, due to cold weather injuries. Um, as this rescue was going on, um, conservation officers were notified of two additional hiker emergency calls. One was a hypothermic hiker on Amanusik Ravine, and then another was a fallen hiker with a head injury on Lost Pond Trail in Pinkham Notch. So um, two conservation officers that had been on the Mount Washington rescue were diverted to Amanusik Ravine where rescues that had just come from Tuckerman Ravine Trail were sent to Lost Pond. So they were coming up from all these different directions. They were able to redeploy them. When they got to the hiker on Amanusik, uh, there was a young woman struggling to make it down the steep section below Lake of the, Cl- Lake of the Clouds Hut. So um, I guess one of the hiking, one of the parties... One of the members of her party had stayed with her while the other hike, other group had hiked out to get assistance. So group of hikers and um, I guess some of the conservation officers that weren't involved in the other rescue hiked up Amanusik Trail from the base station of the Cog Railroad. So by 11 o'clock, they had made contact with a 32-year-old woman from Maryland and a good Samaritan hiker who had stayed with her. She was hiking Mount Washington for the first time and had become separated from her hiking companions. She'd been battered by the weather, became very wet and cold, and she was able to walk out with uh, with assistance and arrive safely at the trailhead around uh, 11.30 p.m. She's reunited with her companions just prior to reaching to the trailhead, and they were able to get her into a warm vehicle and take care of her following the rescue. So that one could have been ugly as well. Mm-hmm. And then as that rescue was going on, um, there was people heading back to Pinkham Notch to assist with a uh, 53-year-old or an 83-year-old gentleman from Maryland who had slipped and fallen uh, descending the Wildcat Ridge Trail and was on the Lost Pond Trail across from Pinkham Notch. So this guy was able to hike out on his own without assistance, but an 83-year-old guy coming down Wildcat Ridge sounds like a recipe for disaster, but he ended up getting <laughs> out by 1.15 a.m. So what a disaster. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Crazy. It happens. Yeah. People are just out. They, they they can only hike on a certain day and they just go out and they don't care about the rain and it gets ugly. Right. So conversely, just a counter to these stories, 
I just have to say congratulations to White Mountain Endurance and Era Vapor Running for a successful and basically uh, rescue-free operation for the Jigger Johnson Ultras. I mean, the weather was absolute shit over the last, you know, the last weekend. Sunday cleared up, but trails are wet, damp. So again, just congratulations. Um, you know, they, they spend a lot of time talking about education and preparation in case things go, go south. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, uh, it was a, a successful event. So, but look at yeah, look good for them. Yeah, look at what happened though elsewhere. It's just stunning. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, it looks like this Saturday coming up. I mean, you you read the forecast. Like it looks like um, we may be dealing with another one of these days. Yep, no question about it. It's like wet, but not wet enough. You know, not enough precipitation to keep people at home watching uh, Witcher. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was like a half an inch to an inch of rain on Saturday. I mean, I think Sunday looks like the day, but even Sunday, it looks like we're going to get some rain in the afternoon. So I think just really keep an eye on the weather and stay low or, you know, stay in areas where you can get down pretty quickly. Yeah. Hey, we have a, uh, a late arrival for the notable hikes, and this is a cool one. So a hunting hippie just finished his 48 on Mount Washington. So last but not least, congratulations. That's pretty cool. That's a good way to end your 48, and it's a good way to end the show. <laughs> we'll see you in a couple weeks. Excellent. Enjoy your time off. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fishing game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland from New Hampshire Fishing Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.